The service takes a slight shift where instead of us talking to the Lord, the Lord now speaks to his people through his word and through the preaching of the word. So let's open our hearts and our ears to hear what the Spirit has to say to his people. Our first reading today is Psalm 51, a powerful uh, psalm that uh, reflects the sermon later today. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. The word of the Lord. The second reading is from the letter to the Hebrews, first one till eight. The second reading from the Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 1 till 8. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son. It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. And your hardship as discipline, God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of Spirits 
and live. They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees, make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. This is the word of the Lord. Our gospel portion is from the gospel according to Luke, chapter 15, a very familiar parable. Please stand. Now, I know I told you to sit down, and now I told you to stand. Up, down, up, down. It's like an Anglican gym class. But the reason we stand with the gospel is in the temporal world, you stand in the presence of kings. How much more when the king of kings is teaching us? Brothers and sisters, the good news according to Luke. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners, and he eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep, and he loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. And then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and she loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and her neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Well, good morning. It is a privilege and an honor to be here with you this morning. Um, welcome if this is your first time to Christ Church here in Jerusalem. Uh, many denominations come through here, but we are all the body of the Christ. Um, let me introduce myself to you. My name is Matthew, and uh, I am from a very strange place of the world called Southern California. Uh, so if you are judging me, rightfully so. Uh, uh, my denomination that I came from um, came out of what is commonly called uh, a revival uh, in the 60s and 70s. Um, some people call it a Jesus people movement or Jesus revival. Um, but my, my parents 
uh, were saved through that revival, and I am a byproduct of, uh, of that. Uh, and I, I didn't come to know the Lord until 1999, uh, where I had my own revival. Uh, I had my own encounter with the living God. Um, there in Southern California, uh, we do have a very strict priestly garment. Uh, it's a Hawaiian shirt with flip-flops. So excuse me for being underdressed this morning. Um, well, good. Let's get into uh, the sermon this morning. Um, really, our story begins with uh, a man named David, King David. Probably one of the greatest kings that Israel has ever seen. However, he has uh, this blemish in his life. Uh, and it starts there in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And the one thing that I appreciate about these things that are written about this blemish is that we know that the word of God is, is really from God and not man. Because if man would write a book, we would negate all of our mistakes and blemishes in life. And we'd only highlight you know, the, the glories of uh, who I was in life. But God being faithful in his word and being true in his word records all of these things. And so it, it talks about David, who was a man after God's own heart. It says that in the spring, when it was time for kings to go to war, that David stayed back. Um, I, Saints, I think that there is a danger when we are supposed to be at, in battle spiritually and we stay back from that. Uh, no, don't get me wrong, I think that God has ordained rest, he's ordained holidays and vacation, but there's a time to fight. And it was David's time to fight. And so David, he comes up in the evening to the roof of his house and he looks down and he sees a woman bathing. And something inside of me says, this isn't the first time that he's taken a casual stroll on his housetop and maybe seen some things that he shouldn't have seen. Because what I find in the Christian life is that we don't just simply fall. I think that we slide into a fall. And so up until this point, King David has been multiplying wives. Uh, it says um, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, God tells the future king not to multiply wives, but David does it anyway. And so you see that he's already making these compromises. And so he's up in the roof of his house and he sees Bathsheba bathing. She's very beautiful. And he sends for her. Now word comes back. He says, wait, isn't this uh, the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba? And so God, he, he'll warn us before we come into a fall. God will speak to us and we need to be sensitive to that. But David may be overcome with the flesh. He sought for her anyway. And so Bathsheba came to him, they slept together, and he sends her home. Now, some time has passed. Bathsheba gives word to David that I am with child, I'm pregnant. Can you imagine that conversation? David's heart must have stopped. But what does David do? Does he confess his sin? Does he make things right? No. He comes up with a plan, a plan on how to cover his sin. And so I think we can learn a lot um, from what to do and what not to do in the Bible. And this is a case of what not to do. His plan is this. Send for Uriah, have him come back. And if I can convince him to sleep with his own wife, well, you know, th there you go. 
then it's covered because it might look like it's just Uriah's child and you know, it's almost like it never happened. So he sends for Uriah, Uriah comes back, you know, he has a conversation with him, some niceties, how are the men, how was the war? Uh, oh, listen, you've been through a hard time, just go home, enjoy your family time, you know, and, and you know, things will, uh, you'll get some rest. But Uriah, who is a man of character, it says that he didn't go home. As a matter of fact, what did he do? That he slept at the door of the palace with the other servants. Because in his mind, he says, my, my fellow soldiers are in battle and the Ark of the Covenant is away. Who am I just to go home and enjoy the comforts of this life and just to be with my wife? So the next day, David finds out, plan A didn't work, let's move on to plan B, right? Let's get him drunk. So he invites him over for dinner. Maybe he sees the wine halfway, tops him off. He gets him inebriated. And so Uriah, hey, just go, go home and enjoy your family, hoping that he would go home and sleep with his, his own wife. And, and there you go. Everything would be covered. But the problem is he didn't go home. As a matter of fact, he stayed back and he slept by the, the door of the palace again. And so plan A didn't work, plan B didn't work, now we have to come up with plan C. And it just goes from bad to worse. And so what does David do? He writes a letter to Joab. And he says, this is what the plan is. I want you to go out with Uriah into the hottest part of the battle, where all of the, the valiant men are. And I want you to, to fight there. And then when it, it, gets, it gets tough, when the war is going on, then retreat from him and let him die. And so Joab listens to David. They come out to the battle, to the, the hottest parts of the battle, and they retreat from Uriah, and there Uriah is killed. Joab sends a message back to David saying, Uriah the Hittite is dead. And that ends the story. It doesn't. So what does David do? He takes Bathsheba to be his own wife. In the eyes of the people, not only do they not know what he's done, that he has sinned, but he almost looks like a hero. And so, saints, listen, we can fool a lot of people, but we can't fool God. We can't hide our sin from God. He knows. But God is faithful, and he loves us. And so one day he sent the prophet Nathan and Nathan comes to David and he says, David, I want to tell you a story. There were two men in the kingdom. One was rich, very rich, and one was poor, very poor. He says the rich man had, you know, much livestock. I mean, he had everything that a person could have. And the other man had nothing. As a matter of fact, the only thing that he did have was a, a one tiny ewe lamb. And he loved that lamb like a daughter. And he said, as a traveler came in to the rich man and the rich man wanting to uh, host him, says that the rich man actually took from the poor man this ewe lamb that he loved instead of taking from his own livestock. And he slaughtered it and served it to the traveler. And at this point in the story, David became very angry. You know why? Because our sin looks very bad on others. We want mercy, but sometimes we want others to be judged. 
And so David gets up and he says, that man shall surely die. And in my mind, it's as if Nathan, probably quiet at this time, maybe takes a step forward and says, David, you are that man. It must have been something like a spear through his heart that he's finally caught. And so David, he confesses that he's sinned against God. And God, he forgives. He says, David, God has forgiven your transgression. But, and this is a big but, sin will never, or the sword will never depart from your house. And listen, God will always, always, always forgive you of your sins when we come and we confess and we repent. But there are consequences sometimes lifetime consequences to the things that we do. It's much like nailing uh, a nail into a board. You can pull that nail out, but the hole is still there. And so God will forgive us, but there are consequences to our sins. Now, today's message is on repentance and God's faithfulness in our life. I jotted down a couple of notes that I want to share with you about repentance. Um, Repentance, I think, is one of the most misunderstood words in the Bible. You might think of, you know, the man on the corner with a sandwich board ringing a bell with no life in him saying, repent or go to hell, you know. Or, you, you know, you have the, Mel we- uh, the uh, uh, well-meaning pastor who gets up and says, repent, and, and it seems very harsh, and you have this misunderstanding. Well, listen, for me, repentance is a glorious word. Repentance is a word that means that I can be something different than who I have been in my life. Repentance means that I can be more like Jesus Christ. So a couple things that I wrote down. What is our part when it comes to repentance? What is our part? Number one, our part, when we transgress, we must acknowledge our sin before the Lord. Look what it says in Psalms 51. It says, for I am conscious of my error. My sin is ever before me against you and you only have I done wrong, working that which is evil in your, your eyes so that your words may be seen to be right and you may be clear when you are judging. Our part is simply that we confess before the Lord, that we acknowledge you know, who, what we have done and, and who we have been and God is faithful to cleanse us of those sins. One of the most powerful passages in the New Testament is found in 1 John chapter 1. It's known as uh, the Christian bar of soap. And it says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think sometimes that when we sin, there's great shame and we can be like Adam, that we, we sin and then we hide from God. <laughs> Because we don't want to see he is holy and he is awesome. And, you know, as Paul said it, knowing the terror of the Lord that we persuade men. But listen, that we, when we sin, we need to come to God. We need to confess our sins. We need to make things right before the Lord. Why spend days or weeks or months or sometimes years walking away from the Lord simply because we're too afraid to come to him? We need to confess those things. Bring things to the Lord. Number two, 
in our part. We need to remember that there can be long-lasting consequences to our sins. We need to remember that there are long-lasting consequences to our sins. It says in 2 Samuel, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thy house, because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah and the Hittite to be thy wife. You know, David lost four of his sons to the sword. And I think that we can escape a great deal of heartache in our life if we just simply remember the consequences to our sins. You know, when my, when my son was about two years old, and for you parents, you know that two years old, they start testing the limits on literally everything. They want to, you know, for whatever reason, it seems like the right thing to do to put a fork in, you know, the electrical socket. And you're like, no, please don't. But I remember sitting at the table having dinner with my family and we had our two-year-old and our, you know, four-year-old and probably our newborn and it was a candlelit dinner. And we're, we're sitting there, it was my wife and I, and my two-year-old, who's very curious, wanted to touch the flame on the candle. Now he, he kind of, you know, as two-year-olds do, they come very slowly like, okay, am I, am I doing something okay? And I said, don't do that. And he stopped. And as so many two-year-olds do, Say, okay, I'm going to try again. <laughs> he starts reaching out for the flame. And as any good father would, I thought to myself, well, let's see how this thing plays out. <laughs> so he touched the candle. And guess what? He got burnt. Now, before you're thinking, like, what, what a derelict father you are. Listen, sometimes God lets us get burned so that we don't do it again. Now, the next time that I would tell my two-year-old or three-year-old or four-year-old or now my 16-year-old, hey, don't do that, he knows that there's wisdom behind it. But we don't need to come to that. We just need to trust the Lord that what he says is good. You know, I don't know which preacher said it first, but he said that, you know, sin isn't, you know, forbidden because, you know, or it's not bad because it's forbidden, but it's forbidden because it's bad. That God knows what is good for us, and we need to just simply trust him. Why walk through life with permanent consequences in our life? Because we weren't willing to listen. So there are consequences to our sin. You know, I want to be candid with you. You know, I, I worked a secular job, you know, for about 20 years in California. And in that secular job, there were a few times where I was invited to go home with a woman who wasn't my wife. And let me tell you something. The first thing that went through my head wasn't, oh, my, my love for my wife or my, my love for my God. It was Psalms or it was Proverbs. It was the idea that I believed in all of my heart that the end of the adulterous woman would reduce me to a crust of bread. I knew that I would lose everything, including my wife and my family and my ministry and everything that will come that brings me joy today. There's a word in Hebrew, um, it's acharit. It's, it's more, it means the end. And it, I think that it means more than just simply um, the end. Um, I think it's the, the end of the path that you're on. You know, sometimes it's, it's translated in the Old Testament, destiny. 
It says in Lamentations, they did not consider their destiny. They did not consider their acharit. And whatever path that we're on, we need to consider that. What path are you walking on today? You know, as my, one of my favorite authors has said, you know, it would be a sin for me to preach God's word and not apply it to the listener. So we need to look, what path am I on? What sins am I playing with that it's inevitably going to cause a fall in my life? And then come off of that path. Repent. So our part to confess our sins when we do confess. And then also to remember that there are deep, long, lifelong repercussions when we sin. Okay. Let's move on. Now, what is God's heart towards the believer? This is the good part. He always comes when we wander off. In other words, he leaves the 99 to follow that one, that come after that one sheep. God's heart is to come after us, okay? One of my favorite passages that, I, that sticks close to me is from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. To whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. God loves us enough to give us a grown-up spanking. He always, always, always comes for us. So if we run from him, we might be swallowed by a whale, metaphorically, unless you're Jonah. If we hide our sin, that he will send a Nathan into our life. When we sin, we are deeply convicted. So God's heart is that he will come for us. You know, I think about that controversial passage in Romans chapter 9 where it says that Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. And many theologians, they take that one passage way out of context and they say, see, God loves some and he hates other people. That's not what it means. If we just look practically at the life of Jacob and the life of Esau, Esau was very blessed. As a matter of fact, he had great wealth. By the time that Jacob came to him, he had so much, you know, so, many, uh, so much livestock and riches. When Jacob offered a gift, he was like, look, brother, I don't need any of that. I'm rich. He was well-to-do. But Jacob, remember at the end of his life when he stood before Pharaoh, Pharaoh said something like, how old are you? I mean, he must have looked so old. And Jacob's response was, few and evil have been my days. In other words, I've had a hard life. God will take the believer and absolutely crush us into a million pieces. And so you look at all of these roadblocks in your life and you see like, man, this guy gets away with everything. I get away with nothing. Saints, it's because he loves you. And, you know, you end up having trials in your life. You have people coming against you and all of these things. You say, is, is God even with me? Listen, God isn't taking you off of the shelf. Maybe he's put you on. One of the marks, the distinguishing marks of the believer is that God will chasten you. You know, coming from a church in Southern California, one of the um, most frequent calls and request, prayer requests is saying, I don't even know if I'm even saved. And usually, if I'm speaking with them, I'll say, listen, one of the most powerful passages in regards to the assurance of your salvation is you can't get away with sin in your life. 
that God comes after you. There have been times in my life where I have backslidden. I have been in sin before, especially in the early days, and God is faithful to come for you. God is faithful. So that's the first, the first thing that I think that we need to look at when it comes to God's heart towards us is that he will come for us. Number two is that there is great celebration when, he, when we come back. There is great celebration when we come back. If you look at the parables there in Luke chapter 15, and there are three, two of them, excuse me, two of them we're going to, um, we, we read this morning, one we did not. But in verse 6, it says, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep. And then again, speaking about the, the lost coin, she says, rejoice with me for I have found the coin. And then when the prodigal son comes back, there is great rejoicing. He throws a feast. I think sometimes we, you know, Satan will come to us. And first of all, he, he's the one who tempted us in the first place. And then when we do sin, he puts us in the penalty box. Oh, you can't go back to God. I mean, like at least like a couple weeks, you know, give him some time. I mean, he's angry. Well, listen, we can come back to him because that is his heart towards us. Listen, do you really think that God would send his only son to live on this earth, to live a sinless life and to die on the cross to be rejected by man? Also, that he can have a scowl on his face when we come to him. Every time that you look up into heaven, God's heart beats faster. That his heart is that you have fellowship with him. Yeah, some of the conversations that we have with him might be hard. There is something of rebuke. Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade man. I get all of those things, but there is great rejoicing. One of my favorite passages, and I know I keep saying that, but it's true. It's found in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. It says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering to you not wishing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. God's heart is that all men would come to him. Unfortunately, not all men will, but that is his heart. It says in Ezekiel that, he says, do you think that I take pleasure in the death of the wicked? I don't. God loves mankind. And we see that in John 3, 16. How much more does he love you, the children of God? When we sin, come to him and there is rejoicing. God created man to walk with him in the garden. And because of sin, there became a separation between God and man because he is holy. But now through the blood of Jesus Christ, we can have fellowship with him again. And that is his heart. So what is repentance? What is repentance? I think sometimes we have it mixed up. Sometimes I think that um, it's all on us. Well, just repent. And then we, we do the same thing the next day. We think like, oh, I must not have repented. I failed. You know, what's wrong with me? Well, I'm going to give you just a quick definition and maybe a little bit of an illustration as to what repentance is and maybe what it looks like. Repentance in its purest form, as far as definition goes, it means a change of mind. It means a change of mind. Now, many people add on to that, a change of direction, and I believe that that's true. Um, 
I think with a changed mind, you're going to have a change of direction. And so repentance means a change of mind. Now let me give you kind of a, a silly illustration. I think sometimes it's okay to make things simple. Jesus did when he told the parables. He made things very applicable to the common person. Um, but just so you understand what repentance could look like, let, let me tell you a little bit of an illustration. Imagine if I came to my friend Aaron, who's somewhere in the back here, and I say, Aaron, look, I'm, I'm having a problem. Uh, it seems like every month I'm sick uh, with some sort of sickness, and it's different every time. You know, I, uh, I have a cold, and then I have the flu, and, and then I have hives. I, I don't know what's going on. Sometimes it's twice a month. I am sick all the time. Now, Aaron, being a good friend, he says, okay, you know what, Matt, I'm not a doctor, but let me just follow you around. Let me see what your lifestyle is like. And maybe we can, you know, figure out what's going on. And so, he, you know, he walks around with me uh, everywhere I go, all day long. But he notices something strange. That every time I come to a door, I don't open the door with my hand. I open the door with my mouth. We're going somewhere with this, so stay with me. Don't pick up rocks just yet. And he, he takes me aside and he says, Matt, okay, look, I'm not a doctor, but I think I know what your problem is. You're opening doors with your mouth. And do you know how many germs and weird stuff is on the, the door handle? Stop doing that. And guess what? Your problem's going to go away. And I say, okay, you know what, Brother Aaron, I appreciate that. I, I thank you for the advice. I know that you love me. I am going to stop opening doors with my mouth. And then he would probably get very serious and say, you know, that's good. You don't want to be sick anymore. And, and thank you for taking my advice. But there is something else that you need to know. Opening doors with your mouth is weird. <laughs> Stop it. You're freaking everybody out. You know, our sin is more than just consequences. We repent not just simply because we don't like what comes after that. We repent because our sin is dark and it's weird probably to the angels looking upon us. The moment that somebody repents, they, they, they don't just simply see that their sin causes harm. They see that it's offense to God. The difference between Repenting in the flesh and repenting in the spirit is seeing the sin the way that God sees it. I am fully convinced that God's conviction in our life as he comes and he shines his light into our life is not just simply God trying to make us feel better or bring condemnation. I am convinced that God's convi conviction is simply showing us what really is and the ugliness of our sin. And I need that. Because I don't want to just simply repent because there are consequences. I want to repent because that's the heart of God. I want to see the world the way that God sees the world. You notice here in the parables that when the woman, when the woman loses the coin, she does two things. One, she lights a lamp. And two, she begins to clean around the area in which the coin was lost. And so, I believe that that's God's part. God's part in repentance for us, I think, is, is twofold. 
Number one, God will shine light in dark areas of our life. He will shine light into the dark areas in our life. Now, what does that look like? I worked in um, a restaurant in Southern California next to Disneyland, um, the kind of restaurant where the prices are um, mostly offensive uh, to the lot of, it's a very expensive restaurant, the kind where the, a steak is $70 and it, it doesn't come with anything except for a plate. And, uh, but listen, it was, it was a very nice restaurant. The food was quite delicious, um, but it was a romantic restaurant. Now, how do we create the romantic ambiance? We turned the lights very dim, served a glass of wine. Now, why is that romantic? Why is, when the lights are dim, you have a glass of wine, why is that romantic? Because anybody looks good in the dark. <laughs> so when you take a date, <laughs> you know, it's when the lights come on that you're exposed, you know, to, you know, the older I get, I'm like, man, the wrinkles are coming and the gray hair. Man, I, I look good in the dark, okay? <laughs> I do. It's when the lights come on, that's my problem. And the same thing is true if we're walking in the, in the dark, we don't really see our sin. We're like, I'm doing pretty good until God shines that light into our dark and we're like, nope, I am not doing good because I see it clearly. And sometimes God just needs to shine that light into dark areas in our life. Number two is he begins to make a distinction between the clean and the unclean. There's a distinction between the clean and the unclean. Okay, now what does that look like? I'm gonna give you another illustration. and I promise to, to leave you alone. Um, I, I took my students uh, down to the Dead Sea this last week. Um, and, and even within this week, I gave them this illustration and I asked them these questions. But we went down to the Dead Sea. And at the Dead Sea, you do two things, okay? You guys been to the Dead Sea before? You do two things, right? You float, you can go read a book and just float around for hours. And you put mud on yourself, okay? The Dead Sea mud. It's, it's kind of iconic, okay? So we're down at the Dead Sea and everybody has the, you know, the mud all over them. You know, me being kind of an ornery sort of pastor, um, I might create a mud fight, okay? I'm throwing mud everywhere. You know, it's, it's kind of ridiculous. Now, other than clearly seeing that I am childish, um, do you think that they would be offended by this? No. Why? Because they're already dirty. They already have mud already over them. They don't mind the dirt because the dirt is already on them. Now, I gave this illustration to our girls. You know, they're, they're young, in their early 20s, and uh, most of them want to get married. And I said to them, you know, imagine that you find Prince Charming. You, you find, you know, the, the guy that God has for you, and you guys get married, and for whatever reason, you decide that I should officiate your wedding, okay? So we're in church, and you look beautiful. White gown, it has taken you two weeks to manicure everything, <laughs> nails and makeup and hair. I mean, you look pristine. And the music begins and the, it's like the angels are singing. You're coming down that aisle and everybody's looking at you. Now, me being an honorary pastor, I pull from behind me a jar of Dead Sea mud. Now, if I would act on that impulse, 
it would take an army of men for that girl, <laughs> to pull that girl off of me. Because she's been washed, she's been cleansed. She's getting ready for the bridegroom. How much more we are the bride of Christ. God has come and he's done a work in our life. He's washed us, he's cleansed us. We don't want the dirt. And if we don't mind the dirt, then there's areas in our life that we need to get cleaned. And as we come to God and we confess our sins and supernaturally he comes in and he washes these things from our hearts and he takes, his, he takes the sin as far as the east is from the west. Once we are clean, there's a sense of cleanse, a cleansed soul upon our life. We don't desire the things of the world anymore. And so my, my, uh, my advice is we come to God until we have that experience with the living God until we experience his mercy and we experience his cleanse from our life to where we say, I, I don't want that. So God's work of repentance is he will shine lights into our dark life. And number two is he will make a distinction between the clean and the unclean. Now, I wanna give you a little bit of theology, theology 101. How can God forgive David? How can God forgive David? I mean, we look at that and we think like, wow, what a powerful passage of God's mercy and redemption. But what about Bathsheba's family? What about Uriah's family? God would forgive him and he still gets to take the throne? That is an offense. Now I'm gonna give you, uh, I, I know I promised to leave you alone, but I'm gonna give you one more illustration, okay? And then I'll be done. I was speaking with um, a man years ago, a Muslim man, a man that I, I really, really considered to be my friend. And the issue of, of religions came up and, and, you know, Christianity versus Islam versus all of these things. And I said, well, let me tell you why I am a Christian, why I, I put my hope in what Christ has done. And, and I asked you a couple of questions and just be, feel free to answer honestly. I'm not trying to trap you or have that aha moment. I really want to know. And I said, is God just? According to you, is God just? In other words, does he always make perfect decisions? And he says, well, yeah, of course. Uh, the Quran says that Allah is just. He, he's perfect. And I said, okay, well, I believe that. I believe, you know, our God is, is just. I said, is God merciful? And he says, well, yeah, of course. The, the Quran says that God is merciful. And I said, okay, well, there's your problem. He said, what do you mean? Like, God is just and he's merciful. That is a fact. And I said, no, that is a problem because you can't have the two together. And he's looking at me like, I don't understand. I said, let me, let me tell you uh, why. Let me give you an illustration. So imagine if you were, you know, you begin work, you know, and, and in the Muslim world, um, it's a very young age, 12, 13, 14, you begin work, and from the moment that you begin work, you begin to save, and you save, and you save, and you want to buy a house, and you, you want to get married one day, and then you save, and you save, and eventually you want to retire, and by the time that you're 65, 70 years old, and you're ready to retire, you have a savings, hundreds of thousands of shekels, maybe even a million shekels in the bank, you're ready to retire. Now imagine if somebody figured out a way to steal that money, and they did. Everything that you've ever worked for in this life has been taken from you, and you're broke. But they catch the man. 
They catch the man that took the money and you're sitting in court. Imagine that this is a court here and the evidence is given. The man is guilty. You know, the judge gets up and he says, look, all of the evidence points to the fact that you took the money, you are guilty, but guess what? I'm a merciful judge. I say go home. Yeah, just go home. I, you know, I, I kind of lean towards mercy. I said, you would probably be more angry at that judge than you were at the man who stole the money. See, we have a theological problem. God is a perfect judge, and we can't get away with sin, but he's also merciful. The only reason that God can forgive us today is because Jesus Christ took our place on the cross. You see, my atheist friends, they come to me and say, Matt, don't you know how many, uh, how many religions there are in the world? There are like 4,200 and whatever. And I said, no, there's only two religions in the world. There's man's attempt to get to God through their own human efforts and their good deeds, and it never works. And then there's Christianity. And there's only one. God sent his only son that he would reach man. You guys understand that? There has never been another propitiation in all of time and history, and there never will be, that Christ can be both the just and the justifier of sinful man for one reason, because Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. As one skeptic said, well, how can one man die for the sin of all humanity? In my mind, I think, okay, well, one man's sin brought sin into the world. One man died that many could be saved. I love one preacher's response to that. He says, young man, thank you for that question. It's my favorite question. Why can one man die for the sin of all the human race from the beginning of time? And he says, because that one man was worth more than all of them put together. He says, if you take a scale and on one side of the scale, you put everything that has ever existed from the beginning of time, from the earth and the universe and children and joy and love and everything. You put it on one side of the scale and you put Jesus Christ on the other side of the scale and he will outweigh them all in his worth. That he is the son of God. And he loves us that much that he would condescend to come to earth to live a, a pauper's life to be rejected by his own people and to die on the cross a brutal death that took the death of, man, of God's own son to save us. We can be forgiven because of what Christ has done for us. So the next time that we go and sin, remember what Christ has already done for us. And maybe that will keep you from going that direction. But God's faithful even if we do, he'll come for us. And we'll get a spanking, yes. It'll hurt, but he loves us. And he'll always bring us back to him because that's his heart for us. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you can, Lord, make something beautiful out of our messes. We thank you, Lord, for redemption. We thank you for your kindness and your mercy. And most of all, we thank you, Lord, for the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses all sin, Lord. 
Thank you, Lord, that we can come to you anytime and make things right. We thank you, God, that you have been gracious with us and you've given us more than what we deserve and that you love us, Lord, with an everlasting love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.